Welcome to episode 515 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Righto team, welcome along to episode 515 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James. Oz, how you going mate? Sensational Bevan. A bit later tonight, normally we're doing this at the other side of the day, normally it's 7 o'clock in the morning, it's now 7 at night. I've taken my no-dos, so I'm ready for a big show. No-dos? Do you ever take no-dos? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on no-dos a lot. If, I, if I've got a, a TT to do or something like that, I'm, uh, I'm hitting the no-dos. One time when I was younger, so here's my no-dos story. When I was younger, because I was a hopeless drunk, like seriously, I was a six-can man, and even then, that was a big night. And I discovered that no-dos was a great solution to keep me awake when I was drunk, because I'd seriously be asleep at six o'clock. So one time on New Year's Eve, I took 25 no-dos. <laughs> it was this stupidest thing I ever did. <laughs> You I, fit in well at our uh, at our rugby league team, the the, the New Zealand oh, Warriors. Yeah, the Warriors, yeah. Like seriously, it was eight o'clock the next morning, and I'm crying in a shower because I can't go to sleep. Like it was not good. <laughs> so there's limits, team. There's limits. I'm Talk is proudly brought to you by Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Extreme endurance. Your lactic buffer. And our patrons. Okay, I'm going to go first because that second one's going to do my head in. So Warren, Agent Smackdown Sutherland, he came in out and did the I Am Talk 10-year anniversary weekend. He's a nice man. Llewellyn, the Anvil Hartley. And we've got uh, Parker Barney. Is it? How does that uh, work? Yep. Uh, Parker Day is his name. Barney is his name. Oh, okay. okay, there we go. Eric Icy Burney. And we've got Robert Cudley. Cuddles, Evan. So there you go. If you want to become a patron of the show, you go to www.imtalk.me. And uh, yeah, it's all pretty obvious on there. Guys, in this week's show, John, we've got some news. Not much news, but we've got a little bit of news. Yeah, we've got an interview with Gina Crawford that Bevan skillfully did earlier today. Yeah, it was a really. The thing I love about Gina is Gina is someone who is a bit quiet in nature, but she's such an open and honest soul, and she was great. You'll, I think you guys will really enjoy the interview. She's mm. retired recently, so we mountains now. We said, get her on, so we got her on. And I did an interview with Tim Floyd, who's a swim coach out of the Woodlands, Texas, uh, with the Magnolia Masters swim team. So we sort of talk a little bit about high-intensity swim training, his sort of thoughts on uh, traditional swimming versus triathlon swimming, and uh, and a little little bit about the course for this weekend. We're going to do my first try at the end. Are we doing it? Yes, we are. Okay, very good. There we go. This week's news, guys. Well, first of all, Challenge Wanaka. Challenge uh, Wanaka? Oh, what? sorry. I just saw Challenge and I thought Wanaka. Challenge Taiwan. So what's we, happening there, John? We had a race we had, on? Uh, we did have Dylan McNeese, who is the, the, the godfather of Challenge Wanaka racing over there, and he raced pretty well until the run when it looks like it got pretty hot for everybody except for Freddie Cronenberg, who took the race out. So he swam, Freddie Cronenberg swam 51, biked 4.33, and then ran 2.59 for an 8.30.28. Took home 8,000 euros. Dylan McNeese was... Uh, uh, you know, it was it was going pretty good, but then only managed a three twenty one on the bike, and so he was eighteen minutes on behind. Because if you'd done three twenty one on the bike, that would have been phenomenal. 
that's probably what those guys will be doing this weekend in Texas. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Dylan wasn't alone in exploding a bit on the run. Patrick Evo, who was third, was 326. And then Pete Rebrusik was 351. So it did sound like it was pretty toasty. And when Frederick Fronberg says uh, the temperature was a bit hotter than usual uh, and he lives in Phuket, so I think you know he's fairly well acclimatised to it. Those other guys just sound like they got roasted. Pretty, pretty impressive to get a sub three then. Yeah, definitely. You know, that, that's a pretty solid run. The girl side of things? Um, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but she was out in Christchurch. She came I'm on say Shayu, Shayu, Shayu Lee. Lee. Yep, yeah. um, from Taiwan. So she's won Ironman Japan before. She's won a number of other races over there. She's a good, strong all-rounder. She qualified for Kona the year before last, I think it was, as a, as a pro. Uh, she smoked it and did a one-hour swim, five hours flat on the bike, 3.30 on the run for a 9.40, beating Jessica Fleming by eight minutes and Catherine Hasner from New Zealand in third was only 40 seconds behind and she wow. was coming up strong. So do, do, pretty you know, small do you know Catherine? No, I've never heard of her before in my life, Bevan. Oh, good on her. So good on her. And also Vanessa Murray from New Zealand. Kiwis <laughs> taking over. Kiwis are crushing it. So I did have a quick look at the Challenge uh, Taiwan website. Didn't look like they had huge numbers in the full. Um, not huge, I'm talking, you know, around about 100 or something like that. But they did have good numbers in the half, so the half and the full there. So, um, yeah, you know, Asia is apparently this market that's going to explode, and they did have a few hundred in the half. So um, good on challenge for, for getting the full back up because last year they didn't have the full distance, they just had the half. We're interested to see if they get it back next year then. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Um, too many 70.3s, but go to St. George. It was the championship race. So what happened there, Jombo? Oh my God, this dude, I mean, uh, Lionel Sanders is just an axe. And I've said that I don't think someone who can't swim can win Kona because, you know, Sebastian Kinlay, he's won it as being an axe on the bike, but he hasn't come from that far down. Lionel Sanders is a woeful swimmer by professional standards. Um, You know, he's losing minutes to the top guys. So Brent McMahon swam 23.18. Lionel Sanders was over four minutes behind him. But he rode a 2.03 um, versus Sebastian Keenlay's 2.06. The other guys are riding 2.09s. And And we've got to remember Keenlay's an axe on the bike. Yeah, but Lionel Sanders can can run the house down as well. So he's the one of the fastest, if not the fastest, at the moment on the bike, and he's one of the fastest, uh, one of the fastest on the run. So he just drilled it in what was a really quality field. So I don't know. I might have to eat my words a little bit because uh, the way that he's going, if he can transfer that across to Ironman, you know, he could just ride through the field and potentially get up to the front. Um, yeah, Hawaii's a different beast, and it's not a half Ironman, but. Man, he's showing some pretty impressive forms. He beat uh, Sebastian Keenlay, who still had a really strong day at the office in second. Joe Gamble's third. Um, on the girls' side of things, Heather Wirtle uh, killed all the girls out there. Holly Lawrence from Great Britain was second. Mary was the North American 70.3 champ, so a bit of money on offer and uh, and good points as well. It sounded like a pretty tricky day with uh, all sorts of weather hitting them from different angles, so... Uh, yeah, that was that's all the seventy point three. There was loads of others at the weekend. There was, um, I think, there was Challenge Remini. There was uh, one in Malaysia. But we're going to start moving into Ironman season now, so uh, don't need to rely on all these seventy point three results quite so much. Andreas Dreitz won in Mallorca, where it also peed down with rain. Um, Cyril Verneau won in Vietnam, so there was racing everywhere. So, just one question I have: Do you really think you could take out Kona? 
Like, because, you know, like if like a Frodo, if you like a, a Kona, because if you're saying he could be, because potentially he's going to come out of the water at like, you know, 58 minutes. Yeah. You know, so he's going to be well back in Kona. Now, if he were to win that race, how amazing would that be to watch, first of all? Mm. But do you actually think it's possible? Well, a half Ironman's not an Ironman. And if he goes off to another Ironman and performs the same way like this, you know, so if he just drills everybody in a non-Kona type Ironman, then, yeah, I think he's, he's got the potential to do it. I still don't think he will. I think that, you know, that, that um, Frodo's almost invincible unless he's, you know, way off his wrong, game. Yeah. But... Um, I don't know, man. That's when you're crushing Keenlay by that much and a half. If he can handle the heat, um, you know he could ride himself up. And you've got to remember, he can put in a, you know, he can put in a steady, even output of power. Whereas those other dudes in that pack are going to be all surgy and stuff. So uh, I think I've, yeah, based off that, I've gone from saying no, no chance at all. To it is a possibility. Possibility. Um, I think it would be amazing if it happened. I'd love to see a race where that happened. Yeah. It'd be exciting. I, I, I didn't think it would happen. You know, we, we had um, uh, Norman Stadler, you know, he was a similar sort of vein to this. He came through and I thought those days were, were numbered. But um, this dude, man, he is just killing it. And the thing is, fastest biker, but also the fastest runner. So if he was just doing this on the bike, I'd say mm, probably not that sort of a Starkowitz type thing. But the dude can run the house down. So, yeah, it's going to add an excellent element to the race. question I have, Jombo, is who's the slowest swimmer to have won Kona, in both male and female? Well, uh, this is, I'm not being too sexist here. Hopefully, I'm, I think there was some pretty poor swimmers, you know, Laurie Bowden and people like that, and Heather Wurtel, not Heather Wurtel, Heather Fuhr, they were the pretty weak swimmers. Uh, on the guys' side of things, in in the modern times, um, you would have to say that you know someone Stadler would probably be the would be the slowest, and, and Thomas Hellregel um, in modern times. Yeah, interesting stuff. Okay, so Ironman Texas has been all over the talk recently. It's coming up next weekend, and the race has been shortened. Um, we've got a little bit more news on that. So, what's happening there, Jumbo? Yeah, so Torsten, the good old Torsten from TryRating.com, he's even come up with a rating based off the shortened bike in terms of his uh, predicted times. So it's a, it's a pretty good field. It's a very um, big pro field. They've got 50, probably about 53 guys on the start line. Not really too many rock, rock stars. You know, you've got Nils Fromhold, who's a top 10 in Kona. Matt Hansen, who didn't bomb out in Kona last year, but he's had some pretty impressive form. Nico Lanos, Jordan Rack, Callum Millwood, um, Justin, Jeff Simon. Yeah, so it's, it's a good, strong feel, but you haven't sort of got the Frodo's or the Keen Lays, guys like that. But it should be, um, should be a really interesting race, and, and it'll be interesting to see what impact the shortened bike ride has because it is, you know, for those guys, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes shorter on the bike, um, the run and swim still the same. So guys like potentially, you know, um, Matt Hansen and Jeff Simons who are the really strong runners could come through. I'm going to be really interested to see how Terenzo Bozzoni goes. I'm desperately keen for him to yeah. crush Ironman distance. You know, yep. he's so good, so good at 70.3. And then we'll have Andrew Starkowitz absolutely blitzing the bike, no doubt. So Although I'm it's kind of the race works against him a little bit because his strength it gets does. lessened, doesn't it? Which I'm yeah. sure is a bit gutted about. Yeah, so it should be uh, it should be a really interesting race. Interesting, Rebecca Keat is a name we haven't seen in a while, and she's racing. Mm, I know, a very long while. Because there was a while where Rebecca Keat was one of the she names. She was awesome. Yeah, there was, a, was. there was a moment where she was just one of the top female athletes in the world. Admittedly, it was a short kind of moment, but yeah, we, we haven't seen a lot of her in a while, so it'd be really fascinating to see how she comes back and races. Yeah. 
So she's still is it the girls' side is um a little bit weaker, I'd say. You've got Julia Geiger who's racing, Kelly Williamson who's down racing Ironman New Zealand, Rebecca Keat, Amanda Stevens. No, Amanda Stevens was down racing Ironman New Zealand. Now there was a name on here that I thought look out for. Alicia Kay. I don't know if she's done a Ironman race before, but she's a very good short course athlete and she could uh rip the race to shreds. So uh look out to see how she goes. Okay, just on that front with Ironman Texas, the one thing that they have said is that because the short has, the course has been shortened, the Ironman have come out and said, registered athletes who wish to compete their Ironman journey at another race will be given an opportunity to transfer into any open 2016 North American Ironman taking event prior to the 31st of December 2016. So, Good on them for doing that. But does, just, that mean, does that mean I have to concede this race? or do I, How does that work? Yeah, so if you say, I don't, this isn't a full Ironman distance race, I'm going to go and do Ironman Whistler. Um, you can transfer your entry across to that, providing it's still got entries open. Okay. So you can transfer into another race. I'm going to see how many people do. Because hmm. I know if I was, if this was my one Ironman, I probably would. Hmm. You know, like, because I want to do an Ironman. But after you've made all your travel plans, you've paid for that, yeah, you've paid for your accommodation you're still, and stuff. You're still... Like I was saying last week, that lady I was speaking to, that you're in, you're in tech, um, Tapo, and she was just saying, you know, you you do the race, but you, you know you haven't done it. Mm. And you and, and even to this, well, how long ago was that? And to this day, she still needs to feel she needs to go back and do an Ironman. So, so Bevan, I've got to commend you on ranting last week because I, 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 I was disappointed in myself for, mm. for not firing up on this issue. But the longer I've stewed on it, it's, um, it's pretty shit. Yeah, it's pretty appalling. But good on them for trying to at least rectify it in some way. But they could have done better on the, off, off the off the bat. I just I just feel sorry for those people. Extremely sorry for those people who get one chance to do an Ironman, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, like it's it just you know, for us who have been in sport and all the rest, it's different. Another thing that's been announced uh, from WTC is WTC have announced that Ironman is strengthening its global competition rules to combat technical fraud or technological fraud, also known as mechanical fraud. As a leader in the endurance sport industry, Ironman is partnered with the Union Cyclists International. Uh, UCI to leverage the latest technology to combat the concealment of motors and other artificial accelerating devices by athletes looking to gain an unfair advantage. The penalty for technological fraud will be disqualification from the relevant event and indefinite suspension from all Ironman events. It's a sad day. (laughs) It's a very sad day. It's a sad, sad day. Yeah. Good. I mean, they've got to bring the rule in, but my God, I hope they don't have to. I hope they don't invest too much time in it. And if they do, uh, yeah, it is pretty sad. Pretty wonder, sad. sad. Well, the question is, I wonder how much it's happening, because there's some schmuck out there doing it. Oh, absolutely, there will be. So, with the See, smoke, the fire. But I don't think sport. The, you know, yeah. like why are you doing a sport if that's you know, like who are you? Yeah. How does it compare against taking drugs? I mean, it's cheating. You know, I don't know. It's uh, if someone's prepared to just fool himself. Themselves it would be as, interesting. Uh, let's, let's imagine if Lance's cheating was a mechanical one. Mm. I wonder what the difference in how he would be perceived for that. Would it be the same? Mm. I think it'd be a bit different. Wasn't there a race last year on one of the big tours where a guy got done? Wasn't there? No, no, they haven't uh, really done any big pro sites. So just sort of got people on the fringes and stuff. There's a lot of accusations thrown, but um, okay. but it was a very small time people that have been busted. So yep, it is uh, must be happening, which is kind of sad, as you said. Yeah, yeah. If you if you're even contemplating that, just look in the mirror. 
yeah. and just think, who am I? What's happening in my life? Why why don't I love myself? Okay, John, your ITU update. What's happening? Yokohama is coming up this weekend. It's the next round of the World Triathlon Series. Uh, it's the last race for Olympic qualifying for countries. So that doesn't okay. necessarily mean that countries have to select their individuals, but after this weekend, we will know how, how many slots each country has got, and then they can choose whoever they want to send into those positions. Uh, it's interesting fields. There's no Brownleys racing. Uh, still no sign of Javier Gomez. And I did go, I looked, I did a bit of Facebook stalking to see if he's injured or whatever it sounded like he had did have some niggles and some personal things going on um, earlier in the year before Abu Dhabi and the in early season races but I did also note on his Facebook page um, fairly recently he did the I don't know what uh, swimming race it was whether it was the Spanish champs or whatever but he did a 1500 meter race and he swam 1556 wow. which is ridiculously fast this is 1500 meters not 1500 meters yards 1556 is extremely quick so what's that uh, about 101 no it must be about 10 just under 104s 104s and so I thought, I wonder how that, I mean, New Zealand is not a strong swimming nation. We occasionally just have this one really good person. But I had a look in the 1500 metre final for, at the New Zealand Open Champs this year, and he would have got second place. There was only one person that went under 16 minutes. Wow. And, uh, and so we've got to think, yeah, we're not a stronghold of swimming, but still, we've got some okay national level swimmers. And so if you, if you want to be a top athlete these days, you've got to be, a national class swimmer and you've got to be a national class runner that dude is awesome so it'll be really interesting to see different paths athletes take this year to get to the Olympics and how different uh, to normal because Gomez is normally out there racing the house down he's bloody racing every weekend so I found that interesting there's uh, also interestingly you know we talk about great the Great Britain women and how they're just killing it uh, on the ITU circuit and this weekend in Yokohama there's no Great Britain woman on the start list uh, you've got Gwen Jorgensen Andrea Hewitt and so on but no G team GBR to crush it so should be some good good uh, racing hopefully John who like I know we asked the question who do you think's going to win the Olympic gold medal, but who do you want to win it? Oh, I'd like to see Gomez win it. I think you, uh, you would. Yeah, and uh, and now with my biased uh, New Zealand hat on, uh, I'd love to see Andrea Hewitt uh, get a medal in the way that she's been going. Yeah, I think she's got yeah. she's, she's got as good a chance of getting a medal as uh, as anybody else. But Gwen Jorgensen should uh, crush it. She's the best athlete. It means how she handles the pressure and how she races. Might get a puncher, um, but Andrea Hewitt. If uh, if things go her way, uh, fingers crossed, she can get herself a medal. Okay, good time sponsor. Athlinks.com. Yes, I went. I was going on there today, and I was thinking, what am I going to talk about? And I thought I've done two two thousand and seventy three miles in terms of the results that I've got on Athlinks, which has been more sort of you know since the interweb has been around. There would have been a lot more miles if I'd managed to get it from. Uh, so back what, in good it can accumulate days. all the miles you've done in your races, can it? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. So you can do a bit of uh, a bit of measuring out there to see how you compare against other people. And I thought, oh, well, I'll have a look at Peter Vaughan, who was on the show last week, and he's the dude who's just done 100 Ironmans. And I don't think he's got all of them up there, but he's got a, a lot of them up there. And he smokes my ass. He has done <laughs> 14,418 miles of racing versus wow. my 2,073. How old is he? Uh, he was about 60-odd, but in terms of our triathlon careers, they're probably not ridiculously different in length. I think he said he started in the, the late 80s, 88, 89, and I started in 91, and as I said, I haven't got all my results up there, but I still think even if I did, 
he would be uh, crushing me. So get on to Athlinks, get all your results in one place and see if you can uh, Skype to your buddies that you've done more racing miles than them. Times rock and roll ethics, guys. If you haven't, if you're not on there, get on there, and then exactly. get into the routine of once I've done a race, I put it in, and it's there forever. Jumbo, we've got some interviews coming up. Now, which one do you want to do first? We'll do Gina first. Okay, so I interviewed Gina today. She's just recently announced her retirement. She was planning to go to the end of the year, but um, she did Port Macquarie and just basically discovered, you know what, her time's up. And so um, was, I really enjoyed the interview with Gina actually. So hopefully you guys do too. So here's Gina right now. Right, our team, I'm very excited to have uh, legend, New Zealand legendary triathlete on the show today, Gina Crawford, um, in Christchurch, and Rangi Yora, how are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. Good to be on the show again. So, um, for those who don't know, Gina moved, where were you before? Uh, I've just been hopping around everywhere. I've um, just taken the t- um, time to explore a bit while my ch- um, child's not at school, so... Um, the last place, we were up in the North Island last for a couple of years um, in Whanganui. Uh, really loved it there. It was a great little town and um, really great for training and really nice people, friendly people. So it was a good place to be, but now back home with family. and It's just, you know, obviously, you know, the big news is that you've retired, kind of retired more suddenly than maybe what we thought you would. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what's, the, what's it going to be like to kind of finally have your roots down again? Are you excited about that? Yeah, it's good to um, be back in this neck of the woods. Um, you know, I grew up lived in Christchurch my whole life so um, it's definitely good to be back where I can um, do not just sporting things but um, I'm quite involved with the music side of things so um, I play the orchestra here the Christchurch Symphony so it's um, great to be able to do that again it was something that I really missed um, doing and I guess I, I, I just know a lot of more people here so I've got connections so I can um get my foot in the door, I guess, in the music world a bit. Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, the big news is the, the kind of the official retirement. Um, it's kind of, it's been coming for a while, you know, you've been kind of communicating a little bit, saying that, you know, I'm pulling away from the level that I was and that. So can you maybe just talk us through what, you know, because how old are you, Gina? Uh, 35. So you, potentially you could still have another, you know, seven years of good racing in front of you. So what was kind of the trajectory to the point where you knew you wanted to move on? Uh, where did that kind of first spark? Um, I guess there's a, a few things going on, but um, yeah, it was was motivation was one of those that I've. I just feel I haven't got that um, that killer instinct anymore. Like even on the race course, um, I I just can't get the adrenaline pumping and um, just can't get excited about it anymore. Um, and that it's just affected my motivation um, to train. And since I've been doing quite a lot of other work in the last few months, um, it means that my big session has to be on the weekend, which coincides with time I want to spend with my son because he's now at um, kindy um, during a lot of the week. Um, so I was really struggling to get out of my long ride. Um, so, yeah, the, the motivation was part of it, but also, um, as many p- probably people know, I've... Um, I think it was about 2009, I found out I had a heart um, defect, um, which is from birth, but just found out about it. And I always said that I f- if I felt um, things were, weren't right, that I wouldn't push through. And just recently, um, I've just felt that something is not right there. 
um, and it's not something you want to mess around with, I think, with endurance sports. So, mm. yeah. So so then just the health factor and, and lifestyle and motivation just kind of made it a pretty clear choice? Yeah, for sure. Like, um, I guess, I mean, I should have probably listened to myself a little bit earlier. Um, I felt something really was wrong in Wanaka, um, and I, I had to quit the race, um, I think, 85Ks uh, with quite – bad breathing difficulties. Um, I, I did, I saw my, my doctor um, and sh- my murmur had got more pronounced. Um, so there's a, a lot of, I mean, I, I haven't gone in to get the scan. I've been holding off on doing it um, because, yeah, it's hard to explain, but um, she felt that I was okay to keep ra- um, racing. Um, she felt that it wa- wasn't too bad, but... Um, it was an indication that there probably was a little bit of a leak in my heart valve, and mm. um, not a very big one. She, the murmur she said was a sort of a two out of a six okay. in terms of how bad it was. But I think I just know my body so well uh, over so many years of racing, um, and I've become very in tune. Um, so just when I'm out there on the on the race, I just I used to be great at climbing hills. So I'd be um, flying up that I was at Port Macquarie. So it's quite a hilly course, something that I would have loved previously. And I would have been flying up, standing out of the saddle. And now I just, I couldn't get out of the saddle at all. Um, No, I just couldn't. And I think if you've got that in your mind, even if it isn't the heart, because I guess the easy thing would be go and get your scan done and you could know for sure, uh, which I've been, I will go, but I've been holding off on that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just if it's in your mind that it could be something like that, it's very hard to get through an Ironman. Yeah. Um, if you firstly don't have the motivation and secondly you think there might be something that's damaging you and this is not what you should be doing. Um, yeah, so it was a combination of those things and um, I really did want to finish at Cairns because um, I love that course um, and it was with with booked it all up um, to go, all of us, um, to combine it with a, a bit of a holiday. Um, so I really did, I was counting down the weeks to get there, um, but uh, halfway through Port Macquarie, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. That's it for me. Has, has racing lost its fun factor for you? And if so, when did you start to lose it? Um, I think maybe... Um, about 18 months ago, I would say. Um, uh, as you know, I've always been someone that's done a lot of racing, mm. um, and that's partly out of because I had to financially. There was no way I could, being from New Zealand, it's the bottom of the world. It's so expensive to travel. My my expenses are massive to in order to keep going, but I was never able to find that sponsor, um, and that's that's partly because of my personality. I'm a pretty reserved person and I don't like um, asking people and so forth but I I really did last year know that I couldn't keep doing five Ironmans a year. My body was getting older um, and I wasn't recovering as fast as I used to and I knew that I had to um, find some kind of sponsorship. So I did last year spend a considerable amount of time um, writing the, uh, you know, um, resumes to yeah, proposals and yeah 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 
and making them personal to each um, company and um, and I, I didn't get anywhere with that and that really sort of affected me a bit mentally um, I think and also took some of the fun away oh, really? of what it had always been about it became sort of like oh this is my job but I'm not I don't know I'm not really getting in it and I it, it's hard to know when you you, you sort of um, I don't know how to explain it but it's um, you sort of feel that you're not good enough because no one wants um, it, you're not able to get someone on board um, and you're getting constantly rejected um, so I think that's sort of hit me but then I realized hey I'm not the most out there person you know I'm not really much of a social media type person putting selfies of myself up but what I am good at is teaching and things like that so I decided to put my energy instead of into trying to get a sponsor I decided to put my energy into doing something that I would be good at and what I would like to do so that was the coaching side of things um, and so I started doing that and I really really loved it and, and then I, I think the problem became that I enjoyed that more than I did training and racing yeah. myself yeah. so yeah did that you, was did you feel a pressure to be something you're not you know because you know as you say you're a bit more of a reserved soul um you know you're, you're not someone who's trying to get the world to look at you as such um and so but in today's world, it's almost like if I want to get money from external factors, you know, it's almost like I've got to play that game. Um, was there a pressure to be something you're not? And if so, how did you handle that? Um, a little bit. I mean, I've it definitely, since I started the sport in 2007, has changed dramatically from what it was, um, where it was about how your results and um, representing a sponsor by sh showing that it was a good product because you were getting the results. Mm. It's definitely become different to that. But having said that, the sponsors I did have were really, um, they fitted me really well and they knew me that I was never going to be a person that would maybe do one amazing race like Kona. I was going to be that person that consistently went out and um, got results in different races um, and, and I, I had a lot of sponsors that had been with me for a long time mm. um, it came to trying to like if I lost the sponsor and trying to replace and the, the the way it had become that was difficult because a lot of them were telling me no it's all about um, how many followers you have um, and a lot of them set proposals um, to do with how many follow followers you had which I thought was ridiculous because if I wanted to, I could go out and buy followers, yeah. couldn't you? Yeah, you can cheat the system. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so uh, that, it did. But then I just realized, well, this isn't the fit for me. Mm. But certainly I realized that um, it definitely became not about results because for a sponsor, um, it would be better to have someone that you never have to give any cash to because they're never on the podium, but they're just really good at, promoting exposure yeah. um, exposure for for nothing just for the product and they never have to pay them a cent and it costs the sponsor nothing as opposed to someone that is out there maybe getting podium positions and then they've got to um, pay them the bonuses which is how most of us um, you get very few people get salaries but you'll get 
bonuses usually if you're on the podium. So I definitely understood um, that that was not the way that I my personality was fitted to. So that's why in the end I, I thought, well, I'll focus on what I am good at and that's just um, helping people and teaching and um, doing my best rather than trying to be someone I'm not. Yeah, which is which is you know, a really good decision. <laughs> you know, like it's Yeah, know. I wish I'd done it sooner. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. 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 So what so in regards to um you know, you're kind of probably in a very reflection based moment in your life right now because you are letting go, you know, as much as it feels like where I'm heading towards is the right direction for me, uh, you are letting go of an aspect of your personality, at least being a high level pro. Uh, what's that like to go through? Yeah, it's, uh, it's um, I mean, it's been, so, I only made this decision just over a week ago. Um, so it's been kind of up and down. Um, there's been parts where, times where I can really see the positives of being, having more time now and not feeling so tired and um, not being on that roller coaster journey where you um, kind of value who you, your um, worth based on your results. Um, and that's a very kind of depressing thing to go through. Um, so I can definitely see the positives. And then some days I'm like scared um, because it's change and humans never like change and it's uncomfortable. Um, and then yeah, you. It's just different. It's a. It's just getting used to that. Um, you know, I've got to find a new um, path now for sure, and there's no real going back anymore since I've written it on yeah, my. Yeah, it's out yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't just say tomorrow. Oh, actually, I'm not going to retire. Yeah. So um, yeah, it it will just take time. It's gonna. It's just the same as anyone that's had a um, one career for ten years and now is finding a, a new new path and um, so it will take time but um you know as they say when one door closes another opens so it's exciting too well I think it's really interesting as well because the thing about your journey is you had a life before sport you know you're, you're obviously an accomplished musician you, you got your teaching so there's kind of an identity and skills that weren't necessarily sport and I often think of the person who's just been the athlete the whole life and you know this is a scary moment for you but imagine if you you know like you're saying I wish I'd made this choice earlier because I've gone back to some core things I know about myself that I love uh, but there I imagine there are a lot of athletes out there especially in our world which is so kind of um, time consuming and you know just life consuming that they get to the end of it and actually have nothing to look to you know that must mm -hmm. be really scary eh? yeah for sure and um uh, that's why I think it's, you know, not not a great idea to go into just sport at a very young age and not have something else to um, fall back on because I think they do say that, what is it, a lot of um, ex-professionals do suffer from depression just yeah. from um, having to adjust to something. And, um, yeah, I'm glad that I, I have got other things to fall back on. Um, but yeah, it's, um, the teaching side of things, it's so, sort of having to jump through quite a few hoops now because, um, because it's been more, more than six years since I was in the classroom. I've got to go through this whole registration process again. And, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, it's going to take some time, but, um, yeah, definitely. I remember when I gave up my, my teaching job, which was, you know, some, 
you know, consistent income. I, I remember and decided to be a pro athlete. I remember feeling sick for for weeks just from just thinking, what have I done? What am I doing? But um, I think it's good to to be in that position and push yourself outside what you what your body wants to be in this comfortable position. Um, or else you never learn and you never grow. Um, so, yeah. Just lo- looking back on your career, what would you say have been some of your career highlights? Um, I think, I guess I will always remember when I, I won uh, my first Ironman, which was Ironman Wisconsin in 2007, and that was just an incredible moment because, um, yeah, I, ne- I, I never thought I'd reach something like that. I hadn't come from a, a really a sporting background and I just sort of stumbled upon the sport and I remember just being so excited by that and um, winning Ironman New Zealand in 2009, um, my home Ironman, um, that was the only time I ever won that race and um, that was just a dream come true to win there. Um, and then Challenge Wanaka 2012, when um, when my son was six months and I, I, I came back into the sport, but I wasn't really seriously, I hadn't done very much training and um, he he was a big eater. <laughs> I was still breastfed. I, I was I wasting away. About, yeah, I breastfed him for about 15 months, but at, at six months he was still fully, like he hadn't started eating food yet. So I was... Um, that was just such an exciting race because I was, I'd been up with him all night, hadn't slept at all, um, and then race day I had no expectations whatsoever, and I found myself out the front, and I, I had a group um, about two minutes back, and they were working well together trying to catch me, and um, for the whole iron distance race, it really, I had I think Britta Martin two minutes behind me in, in the run the whole time, and um, it was just pure. Um, guts and um, mental willpower that got me to that win um, because I just hadn't done the training and yeah it was exciting race. What would you say would be your biggest strengths as an athlete your character traits or or what was it that that you believed made you you know experience the success you had? I think it was just the fact I, I wasn't really that great at any of the swim bike or run but I I I didn't I wasn't really bad at any of them either I was just sort of um you know average at all three and and so um I I I would be able to if I had a bad bike I'd have a good run and if I had a a good bike then sometimes I didn't have a great run but I think I just because of all the three weren't I wasn't terrible at any of them so I didn't have a massive weakness I just managed to um succeed without being a star at any of the three three disciplines. So that's what I always think was um, how, I, how I succeeded. But I guess my, um, my determination and work ethic um, and resilience, I think, I was good at picking myself up. And I'd, if I had a bad result, I'd be upset for a few days, but I'd, I'd soon be able to um, get over it and have another goal. 
what, what was your relationship with Kona? Because, you know, you had some, you know, you, top 10 in Kona is bloody impressive. And you, you kind of had a period where you were very consistent at getting that top 10. Um, were you satisfied with your Konas? Or, like, what was your relationship with Kona? And, and now you're leaving the sport. How do you feel about your Kona performances? Mm, I had, um, I think I had four top 10. Yeah, which is bloody impressive. Yeah, but I think I also had um, three DNFs. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, Kona. Um, I hated the bike course to tell you the truth. I, I, I just felt like I was in a, a fan oven, um, and I, I, I wasn't ever in a position to really focus fully on it for for um, financial reasons because you know if you got tenth, you got ten thousand dollars. But if you got eleventh, you got nothing, and it, it was it, it was more than ten grand for me to go to Kona. Yeah. Um, so I never put it, all my eggs in one basket and I, I didn't have that belief in myself, I don't think. Um, so I, I would just go there as a bonus um, and just see how I could go. Um, but, yeah, I, lo- I loved the swim. Um, I hated the bike course um, and the run. Um, I loved that, that first part down Ali Drive and then the second part, I just hated that as well. Um so out of all the courses, it was definitely, I mean, everyone knows it, it's the most challenging course. And for sure, it's not a course that that I could just back up from. Um, after I did Kona, I was totally wrecked. Um, my body was wrecked um, for a long time and, and mentally and physically. And I knew that after last year, I just, I, I didn't want to race there again. I think I'd given my all Um to that race and it's it just it takes too much out of you for for me personally to go back there again what would you say was um what, what was your motivator you know are you a very comp- like really competitive person or what was the thing that kind of motivated you because you know as you say you've had some pretty tough races and you've had some really good success in your career so obviously your ability to push through is is something that's very admirable so in your tough moments what is the thing that drives Gina yeah, I was not a typical pro athlete, I don't think. Um, and I did have coaches, I think they got pretty frustrated with me because <laughs> I was never able to set any goals. Um, I never had any goals um, because my, my goal was just to um, do the best that I could. And I, I did want to put like a, a, a good race, like a good bike, a good swim and a good run all in one race. But I didn't care where it was. I just wanted to do that. And they really wanted me to sit, sit, um, set specific goals. And, um, yeah, I, I just wanted – my main motivation when I came back after having Benny, um, I just wanted to be able to survive as long as I could because I, I saw it as a great opportunity for him to to not have both of us parents working in full-time jobs and never seeing their child. He had a great – lifestyle he was able to travel with us and he had great I had great flexibility so um it it was all about him really and and so every time I um was on the course um I knew exactly what I would earn for first what I'd earn for second what I'd earn for third and I'm not money hungry but I just knew that if I got first or second I'd make a profit if I got third I'd it'll be probably you know even and if I got worse than third, I'd lose money. 
So <laughs> that was my motivator was always thinking about him and um, trying to make it work for him because I, I always said that I wasn't, it's, I had no kind of ambitions for myself, I don't think. Yep. Um, so if I wasn't making it into a job, then I wouldn't be doing it. Um, yeah, so I, I wasn't very ambitious. <laughs> well, was there an interesting question because then let's say you're in like I know this is you know not, not never would have happened or didn't happen but let's say you got a position where finances suddenly were just never a problem how do you think that would have changed you as an athlete because you're basically saying I, I I had this role in life that I wanted to provide for my family and uh and in the race I could really see how the choices I make right now can influence I can provide for my family so that was a real motivator and it was it was more of an external kind of motivation than an inner motivation but if, if you were to have had a position where a sponsor would have come on board and just looked after you financially what do you think how would have that been different yeah it's hard to say I mean when it's just something that you're sitting here in hindsight and thinking well if that had happened I'd do something differently but yeah. I, I think personally I might have um been a bit bored if, if I'd I don't think I was a person that could motivate myself for a long period of time for one race. So um, if I had have done, say, two iron distance races a year, I feel I, I was the kind of person that I needed to be focused on one race at a time. And because I always had a race so close together, I was it was pretty easy for me to keep motivated. Mm. And I think me personally, if if I hadn't... I've had so many races, I would have struggled with motivation um, and with, I don't think I would have handled the pressure, um, say going to Kona, if I hadn't have had this, um, these other races um, and if I just turned up to Kona with no real income for a long period of time, I don't think I would have handled that pressure. It's interesting what motivates us, isn't it? Hmm. Who, who did you admire, like over your time? Who were the athletes you were like most impressed with? Oh, there's so many. Obviously, being from New Zealand, I've always been inspired by Cameron Brown yeah. um, and Joe Lawn. Yeah. Um, well, what was it? Must have been pretty exciting when you took her out that year. Like that must have been a pretty big thing. Yeah, well, I felt bad for her. To be honest, I felt bad that I had to beat her. I mean, I wanted to obviously win the race because I'd never won it before, and we're both from New Zealand. But I felt bad that I had to beat her to do it um but I knew I know that she used that as a major motivator and when she came back in 2010 um she she did such a great race and um yeah I was so impressed with her race in 2010 I think she ran a 306 or, or something like that and yeah. that was you know one of her best iron distance races I think yeah um but yeah, other people that might obviously Chrissy Wellington. Yeah. Um, I I still think that she is. I mean, it's hard. To, you know, she's not able to go up against Daniel Reef or Carfrey again. But I still see her as the best ever. Um, and she was just phenomenal. Yeah, she was, wasn't she? Yeah. She was a freak. <laughs> she was. She was mind blowing, eh? Like just what she yeah. could do. You know, she just had it all, didn't she? Yeah, and there was, you know, she ran, I think in Roth, she ran 240-something. Yeah, she did it at 8.18. An 8.18. Yeah, I right. know. I can't get my head around that. It's just so Man, incredible. Like, it's just phenomenal. Mm. Yeah. Hey, um, 
what about if you were to look back, what, what, if you could change one thing about how you race, what would you say that would be? Mm. I don't know. I, I don't tend to have regrets because yeah. what's done is done. And even if I had something bad happen, I always learned from the experience and it always made me a better person. So I can't think of anything that I'd change, really. It, I was happy with how everything panned out and the lows always helped me get to a better place later. So, yeah, I can't answer that one. I'm sorry. One thing you, you always did is, you know, it very much was a family affair for you. You know, I remember always seeing your man there and um, and your kid there, you know. And what was what was the key to making that successful for the family? Because, you know, a lot of athletes lead kind of a lonely life. Um, whereas you, you guys, as a family, decided, no, this is a journey we're doing together. And so what made you guys successful in doing that? Yeah, I think we just had have a bit of a different um, viewpoint on on life, maybe. Um, so it was always about quality time was the main factor, um, not earning a set amount of money which was going to be better for us, but the, the quality of the experiences we, we got to share together. And, um, yeah, we had some great times. Um, we went to Europe a number of occasions and... Um, took Benny across obviously and um, yeah we just got so many great memories and um, yeah loved every minute and um, I, I had to travel a couple of times alone and I really struggled with that and it was yeah. I think after the last trip I, I was just like I don't want to ever go again by myself it's just yeah it's just not the same um, and that was another motivator was for, for I knew that in the few once he started school, which is in a couple of months, he wasn't going to be able to travel as much, which meant that I'd be just doing it by myself across to Asia or, or to Australia, and it's just not what I want to do. I, I love to be, you know, with those two, um, my husband and my son. It's just they everything to me. So I, I want to be able to spend that time with them and not travel by myself and. I think it's it, loneliness is definitely part of Ironman. I mean, I, I have always trained alone, so I'm out there for um, you know when I go for my long sessions, yeah, hours. hours and hours yeah. and hours by myself. And um, yeah, I just loved being able to come back and spend time with them, and it's made it all worth it. What do you think Ironman gives you for your rest of your life? You like like you know like I always. I know like, I've been away from the sport, obviously I do the podcast, but, you know, training and doing the sport's been, you know, it's been eight years for me. But, you know, there's this kind of thing that I am in gave me. What do you think that will be for you? Yeah, definitely resilience and um, pushing through hard times. I've got so many memories now and that I know that I can, when I think I can't do something, that I can. Mm. Um, and that definitely transfers to all parts of your life. Um, because, you know, Ironman race is sort of like a life where you've got your ups and you've got your downs and it definitely gives you that mental strength um, that you know you can push through those bad times. Um, you just have to, sometimes in life, you've just got to put one foot in front of the other um, until you get back to a point where you're on more of a high and, 
you know, you know, life is going to be ups and downs. And so now I know I, you know, can push through um, and just keep going. Yeah. So you, you are coaching. So if people want to get in contact with you for your coaching and uh, where they go and, and, you know, obviously get a good coach. So uh, where do you go to get in contact with you? Yeah, I've got my coaching website up. Um, it's coachginacrawford.com. Um, yeah, and so they can just get in contact with me on my um, con- there's a contact kind of page there and just ask me any questions and um, yeah I'll be in Cairns um, I'm in um, so people can come and arrange to meet me there if they like or um, yeah just go from there well, good luck for the future. And the thing I know about you is you're obviously a very kind of high level person. You know, I play I play piano, and, and I'm far from ever being in a symphony orchestra. I tell you that much. So, uh, you know, like it's you obviously just you know, I'm sure you've got a lot of success moving forward in your life, and it's been really awesome watching your career. And you've made many New Zealand, especially in the sport, very proud of what you've achieved. Um, you know, just thanks for your time today, and keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thanks, Bevan. Thanks a lot, and um, yeah, thanks for your support over the years. It's been- Okay, Jombo, uh, Gina, let's do, she's a bloody star. She, she really was a bloody good athlete. It was really interesting because you haven't heard the interview, but it was her, that whole idea of that she never really got to crack Kona because of the sponsorship problem. But then at the same time, she's not sure if she, if she had the time she would have performed that well anyway. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was, she was, yeah, it's a really good interview. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, John Sponsor. Extreme Endurance. I checked in with uh, Extreme Endurance the other day to make sure people ask about promo code and stuff. Use the promo code IMTALK10 and you get 10% off. So that's on the .com site. It is also on the .eu and .uk site. So I did go onto there just to make sure it was all straightforward. They said if you click on the the cart at the top right, this is if you're on the .com, co.uk or the uh, .eu, then you can add in the voucher details. I went through the process and I couldn't see where to put the promo code in, but if you're ordering your stuff, click on buy now, buy this, buy that, and then at the top, click on the cart, um, and then you can put in your promo code in there. So that I am talk 10 gives you 10% off. Great way for you guys to save some money, and also it means that they can see that their uh, efforts in supporting the show are recognized by you guys going out there and getting it. So check it out, xendurance.com. And if you're in Europe, check out the, dot, the EU and dot UK. Yeah, and remember, guys, X Endurance, the original product is a product that's for your lactic threshold. And it really helps to get rid of that DOMS and that muscle soreness so you can train better and perform better as an athlete, which obviously, John, would lead to better performance, wouldn't it? Absolutely. In theory, in theory. It is a bit of a jigsaw puzzle being an endurance athlete, but in theory. In practice for me, it's worked absolute gold. Okay, John, but we've got another interview coming up. Uh, we've got Tim Floyd. So he's from where? He is from the Magnolia Masters swim team, and he is based in the Woodlands in Texas, which is the site of this weekend's Ironman Texas. Uh, as you're going to hear, he's had uh, a lot of experience in swimming, been a triathlete himself, and predominantly coaches triathletes these days, and has just got some, some different thoughts around what type of training we should be doing, intensity, etc. So uh, listen in. Here we go. Here's uh, Tim right now. Okay, guys, it's time to talk a little bit of uh, swimming, and we've got uh, the head coach from Magnolia Masters, Tim Floyd, with us. He's been 
an athlete himself. He did his first triathlon 28 years ago. He's been swim coaching for 25 years. And uh, in 2010, they've set up a, um, a sort of open water swim, swimming for triathletes as well as their, their swim squad in the Woodlands, Texas, where they've got Ironman Texas this weekend. So welcome along to the show, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's uh, great to be on. So tell, tell us a bit about your background. I mean, I've given uh, people about a, a five-second intro there, but maybe a bit of your background around both uh, coaching swimmers and also your sort of triathlon background. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started kind of swimming competitively in Southern California when I was about seven years old. Nice. Um, and, you know, swam, I guess, for about four years, kind of burned out a little bit. Um got into a couple other sports. I did baseball and basketball. And, uh, when I got back into, when I was going into high school, I decided to start to swim again. Um, so swam through high school. Um, while I was in high school, I did my, this was my first triathlon. Uh, I was about 15 years old. So this would have been 1988. Um, and it was a, it was actually the last Ironman qualifier of the year. Um, a little race in uh, outside of San Antonio, Texas, called the Texas Hill Country Triathlon. And they actually, in 1988, they usually had about 900 to 1,000 people that would, uh, that would wow. race. And um, it was kind of an odd distance. It was uh, like a 1.6, 1.7-mile swim, and then a 48-mile bike through the Texas Hill Country, and then a 10-mile run. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the pros at the time, triathletes at the time, would come in and race it as a tune-up for Kona, and then stay because you know the conditions in Texas in September are pretty brutal in terms of heat and humidity and wind, and um, and then they go over to Kona from there. Nice. So um, when it comes to to the swim training side of things, you know. Yeah. Um, Triathletes get, you know, always uh, the finger pointed at them saying they do a ridiculous amount of training. And, and relative, yeah. to, relative to the length of our race, we probably don't really. For, for, yeah. swim, for swimmers, they, you know, swimmers swim between 5 and 15 kilometers a day, six days yeah. a week for, uh, for, for an event that's going to be between, usually between one and f- sort of four minutes. Um, yep. so, so I guess, you know, a lot of that um, ethos around uh, big training and, and training lots yeah. has, has come across to triathlon. Um, Magnolia Masters, you sort of focus more on on high intensity swimming. So maybe just yeah. explain your sort of your your, your your ethos around that. Yeah, I mean, so this has been actually a, a fairly big debate that's been going on in triathlon or in swimming for probably since at least the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before kind of uh, I guess around Mark Spitz's time when he won all of his gold medals. Those guys really didn't swim a ton. It was kind of, you know, one time a day, um, you know, so think kind of like Doc Councilman kind of stuff. Um, he was only swimming those guys one time a day. It might have been about 5,000 yards mm-hmm. um, or 5,000 meters. And um, in the kind of mid-70s, uh, some coaches as the, you know, exercise science started to come around, you know, you looked at, hey, there's not a ton of impact in terms of what's going on with the swim, so we can swim more. Mm. And they really started to go, um, in terms of volume, they started to just really kind of hit these guys with huge amounts of volume. And they were going, um, you know, upwards of, 
you know, 100, 125,000 by kind of the beginning of the 1980s. Mm. Um, and, you know, what you were seeing was like these records that were just getting smashed. So previous generations of records were just getting smashed. Like I had a, um, a coach that coached me and he had gotten a bronze medal in the 68 Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom asked him, I was probably maybe 16, 17 at the time. My mom asked him, you know what, um, you know, how do your times stack up now? Um, and he said, oh, no, he goes, there's 12 year old girls that beat my time from <laughs> 1968. So, um, you know, records were just absolutely getting smashed. And around that time, um, there was a coach out of Southern California. So a lot of the epicenter of a lot of this was Mission Viejo in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the coaches that was around that area was a guy by the name of Dave Salo. And he was getting his. PhD in uh, exercise physiology. And he was looking at some of the science and what it was telling him. And it was that you could do high intensity stuff and shorter, faster, not do as much volume. And the science was kind of pointing that it was the equivalent, if not better, depending on how you wanted to look at it. And so he started to write in Swimming World magazine around 1982 that about what he was doing. And he's kind of carried that through. He, he uh, built up a program in Southern California called Irvine Nova Aquatics that, um, that kind of uh, was that ethos, was that ideology of, you know, of what he wanted to do. And um, so he uh, has had a lot of great swimmers through kind of like open water, you know, 10K world champions mm. that he's employed that idea with. And um so that kind of evolved until, uh, you know, mid 2000s, late 2000s. There was another uh, exercise scientist at a San Diego state named Brent Rushall that started to write about um, what the science was kind of indicating. And he came up with an idea that he calls USRPT or ultra short race pace training. Mm-hmm. And similar kind of ideas to um, Sutton, it's got a, or to Salo. It's got a little bit more um, structure to it um, and, you know, gives there's some ideas within it that, you know, I kind of adopt. There's others that I don't really agree with and don't see that as work as well from my experience as a coach. And so I've kind of taken a little bit of all that and combined it based on what I see with the triathletes and come up with the program that we've got now at Magnolia Masters. So when you're talking intensity, um, yeah. you know, triathletes sometimes think, you know, going and smashing a, a hard yeah. 200 is, is intensity. So maybe give us yeah. some, some idea and examples of, sure. um, of, of what intensity really means for in a workout. Yeah. So um, I pretty much try to keep everything under about 100 in terms of the repeat. So, mm-hmm. and we're, you know, we're typically playing at, no more than about an hour to an hour and a half workout. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the workouts that I'm doing are, you know, like one of the, one of the pros that I coach, uh, Balaj Choka, you know, he's, he's arguably kind of one of the faster swimmers in Ironman now. I mean, the last three races, he's been the first pro out of the water. So mm-hmm. that was uh, Budapest 70.3, uh, Ironman Chattanooga, and then uh, Ironman Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, he pretty much only swims, it's probably about 14,000 yards a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
really none of the workouts are longer than an hour. And certainly none of them are, there really aren't many that are longer than about 4,000 or 4,000 yards, 4,000 meters. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we'll, so if I had to say that the sets that are probably the most intense would be, um, Balazs has done stuff like, uh, I've had him go 25 100s on say, uh, about 120 to 125. Mm-hmm. And this is yard. So yeah, 120 yeah. to 125 and he'll hold, uh, 50, I think probably the best he's ever done is about 59 per hundred. Mm-hmm. So long course equivalent, that would be kind of one of long course meters equivalent. That would be 106 probably for him mm. um, on about 125, yeah. maybe 130. Yeah. So that would be kind of uh, a, a fairly intense set. And, you know, where you're trying to dial in that same pace to the second on each 100. Mm. Um, I've done stuff where uh, if we're working on something else, um, you know, like maybe f- somewhere between 40 to 60 25s. Yeah. Um, those would be on about 30 to 35. And for Balazs in a yards pool, I'd have him hold, uh, we'd be trying to hit like maybe 12 mid. Yeah. So about 12 and a half seconds per 25. Mm. And then what we're doing is, you know, if I'm on deck, we're making subtle changes to the stroke while he's going at that speed. And, and so for age group athletes as well, pretty similar. Yeah. And, and do you hit them with intensity in pretty much every session every week or is it um, yeah. sort of periodized out? Yeah, I mean, you know, typically I don't periodize much for two reasons. It's It's, you know we're really not in the water enough to really kind of do a, a, a true kind of periodized kind of schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is, is I'm less concerned about kind of the metabolics. So aerobic capacity, anaerobic capacity, you know, I kind of, when I looked at, when I was going to train triathletes, I looked at, you know, Hey, we're only in the water, maybe three to five hours a week. When if I was training a distance swimmer, I'd have 20 hours a week. So what do I have to triage? So what's the most important? What's the least important? And what became the most important was how do we make that movement in the water really, really efficient? Um, and if we're moving in the water, then the metabolics will kind of to get that efficiency, the metabolics will kind of come along with it. And then, you know, where they're doing a lot of their aerobic training anaerobic training is is on the bike and the run anyway mm-hmm. um so i was more concerned about you know what the actual mechanics were how we reduce kind of the drag component you know because you can have um an athlete if their hips drop in the water um can that increases drag by up to 25 percent so you know you can make the you can build up the the, the greatest engine in the world and, you know, if you produce a ton of drag, you're really not going to be able to overcome it. It'd be like, you know, the equivalent of, hey, you you're able to produce 300 watts on the bike, but you put, you know, two water two two water bottles on the down tube. You wear a T-shirt and, um, you know, uh, you put like a parachute on the back of your bike. <laughs> yeah. So any of the, you know, you have gator skins on the on the wheels and, you know. 
these old kind of soft aluminum rims. Um, so anything you can do to really slow down the bike, um, yeah, you could produce 300 watts, but you know, hey, you're not really going to go that fast. On on the stroke mechanics, you know, there's there's a lot yeah. of d- debate around that. People having different approaches, you know, the yeah. the Janet Janet Evans style or the, sure. the sort of you know nice long smooth DPS. Um, yeah. w- when you're talking about stroke mechanics and stuff, obviously yeah. we, we can't have people with with low hips. But is yeah. is there a particular style that you you promote amongst triathletes? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that. Um... I don't really have a particular style per se, uh, because, you know, most of the, the triathletes that I'm working with, you know, as kind of adult onset swimmers, if you want to call them that, or they don't start swimming until they become adults. Um, you're usually dealing with a lot of issues in terms of limitation, in terms of shoulder mobility, thoracic mobility, um, tightness in the hips from the biking and the running especially that hip flexor. Um, You know, when you're on that bike as much as triathletes are, that tends to get pretty short and tight. Um, And then, you know, really tight and inflexible kind of ankles. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I'm looking to kind of basically work around those limitations and come up with the best stroke that we can get at for um, those kind of issues. Now, you know, there are certain things that, you don't want to kind of ignore. So one of them would be uh, there's a high performance consultant that works for uh, USA swimming named um, Russell Marks. And he was actually, he was with NASA before he joined with USA swimming. So he looks at kind of, you know, what works well for stroke mechanics or what are some of kind of the ideals. And, you know, one of the ideals would be that, um, you know, you don't have the, the shoulder doesn't come off the plane of the water by about more than 30 degrees. Um, you know, one of the things that I see with that, you know, the, as you see a lot within triathlon, that, that kind of Janet Evans windmill kind of stroke gets Mm. promoted a lot Mm. and, you know, just kind of across the board, um, regardless of, regardless of kind of any issues that, uh, that an athlete might have, um, with that. And one of the things that you see is that, you know, routinely that the shoulder would be anywhere from kind of 45 to almost 90 degrees off the plane of the water. So mm-hmm. what's really going on is if that, so suppose that left shoulder is up at mm-hmm. 90 degrees off the plane of the water, mm-hmm. it means that that right shoulder is down mm-hmm. in the water that much. So that's all frontal drag that you're presenting to the water that's slowing you down. And that's kind of why you want to stick kind of in that less than 30 degree kind of, um, uh, area. Mm-hmm. Cause then the, the shoulder isn't going to be down in the water presenting all that drag that you have to pull against mm-hmm. or actually go into. So, um, that's kind of one of the things that I'm looking at. The other thing is, you know, um, as we talked about earlier with the, the hips being down, um, that creates a huge amount of drag. It, it, it limits that it shrinks that water line. So then technically you're not going to get as much distance per stroke. So you're not going to get, you're not going to be as efficient. Well, can athletes so, you know, um, do, because so, yeah, I totally agree with the, the hip position, that's a huge problem. A lot of yeah. athletes so listening to this are going to be struggling to think, what the hell can I do? And, and I know that yeah. Yeah, there's going to be individual cases, but in general, yeah. what can athletes try to do to, to, to get those hips up a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, in some regards, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg. Um, you know, it's, it's when you go fast, um, the hips are going to come up naturally, Mm. um, just from kind of lift. So if you're flexible, um, you're, you can, you can point your toes so that you're really long and flat on the water. Um, it's a lot easier to get the hips up. Now, the other thing would be that if, you know, you are kind of perpetually really, really tight from a lot of biking and running in the hips, then you've got to do all the kind of prehab rehab stuff that you can to really open up those hips, get those hip flexors a little bit more loose and longer so that it's easier to get that extension on the water. Hmm. Um, The other thing is, you know, ankle flexibility is key and you've really got to work on some ankle flexibility issues. So if you are, you know, have a big running background and, you know, your, your ankles are almost kind of like cemented in place, then yeah, you've got to do some stuff where you can really point those toes and and get some ankle flexibility. So if that means you've got to sit on your ankles in front of the TV and watch TV a little bit, then so be it. Um, you know, but do what you can to get that ankle flexibility, um, to where you can point the toes in the water. Cause that, that without a doubt brings people's hips down. If you have those, because the those ankles then are just acting almost like a parachute on the back of your back end of your body. There's nothing like seeing an ex runner doing some kick in the pool, is there? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and that's the other thing is that you know, um, there's a lot of research coming out, and um, you know, I've got kind of a, I mean, it'd be the the easiest thing to say would be it's a power it's a power meter for the water, so I can measure with this little gizmo, I can measure. Um, velocity and power in the water, it measures it every 60th of a second. Mm-hmm. So you can really see what's going on in the stroke. And if you think about um, kind of an efficient stroke, and a, a stroke cycle, if you graph it out in the water, basically looks it's an up and down kind of wave. So you have an acceleration, then a deceleration, acceleration, deceleration. So the most costly point for a swimmer is getting out of that trough and coming back up into acceleration. So that acceleration point, you're dealing with drag. So if you can minimize drag, come up into acceleration, you're going to be more efficient. So the other thing that happens is if you look at just the kick. So the kick is a wave, but it it doesn't, it's not as pronounced. So the troughs aren't as deep. It's a lot more steady. Mm-hmm. So typically, if um, most of the guys that I, the pros that I coach, they swim at about anywhere from about 1.5 to 1.7 meters a second. Um, A really good kind of efficient kick can propel you at about anywhere from 0.75 to 1 meters a second. So if you have an efficient kick working with a stroke, what that does is it puts a floor with the kick on how much you can decelerate in that normal stroke cycle. So then if you've got an efficient kick, it stops you before you really start to decelerate too much. The trough isn't as deep that you've got to get out of to accelerate back up to speed. Then you're going to be more efficient. With that in mind, do you do much kick training? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. The triathletes hate me. So, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> they, they really hate me. Yeah. So, um, but you know, look, if you have, 
and it's and I look, I've got you know guys that have huge college running division one division one running backgrounds in their in their background, and um, you know everyone can get better at kicking. Yes, it's frustrating, but if you are kind of a triathlete that is out there. And when you kick, you don't go anywhere or, you know, with a lot of the runners, when they first start kicking, they actually go backwards. Mm. Oh, yeah. So it's it's incredible. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Um, But all you have to do is kind of think about that. What do you think that's doing to your swimming when you're swimming? Because even if you're dragging your legs behind you, there's still a little bit of a kick. So if you have if you generate absolutely no propulsion from the kick. Um, or it's kind of a negative propulsion. Um, that's an issue for your stroke when you're swimming and in open water. So, um, everyone's going to hate to hear this work on your kick. (laughs) So what about some other ideas for, for, for triathletes? Um, because you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of different coaches out there with different methodologies and maybe there's some, some bad ideas, but what are some of the other key things that you really try to do with, uh, with triathletes? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a couple of things would be, um, you know, one of the ideas is I've seen a lot like these, uh, you know, everyone talks about using big paddles, big, you know, have a pull buoy on a band. Mm. Um, so I was around in swimming when I was training for swimming, um, kind of the idea of the band use came out and, Mm -hmm. you know, we did it and I did it. And I, I was with, I mean, I swam in college with guys that, had world records and won gold medals and were, um, you know, U.S. swimming college champion, NC2A Division One college champions in their in their respective events. And um, in all that time swimming with a band from a world record holder on down, I have never really seen anyone be able to swim flat on the water mm. with a band on. So that, you know, effectively what you're trying to do is if – you're trying to get a really efficient swim stroke. You want that entire kinetic chain. So from when the hand enters the water, leaves the water, recovers as the kick is going, you want all of that to be very integrated, very coordinated, very efficient. So if you have the idea of why then would you ever want to train yourself where your back end is tilting down as much as 30 or 40 degree angle, because then the mechanics of the entire stroke change. Because your, your shoulders aren't over the stroke anymore. It's moving out kind of really where that the meaty part of the pull is. Because typically if you're flat on the water, that's about a little bit in front of 90 degrees from your shoulder and a little bit past 90 degrees from your shoulder. That's where the big acceleration in the stroke is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are at an angle down on the water, then it basically means that that kind of uh, sweet spot for the pull is then going to move out in front of you. So then it becomes from effectively right when you enter the water to about where, you know, you're just in just right at equal with your shoulders. Um, there's really no good reason in my mind why you'd want to practice that. Um, the other thing would be, uh, you know, triathletes love to use kind of big paddles. I've seen a lot of there's a big promotion of kind of the huge trash can lid kind of paddles and this idea of, you know, developing strength. Yep. Um, so for most swimmers, so the um, 
a distance swimmer, they looked at uh, what the stroke tempo was. So the basically the, the time that it takes to complete one stroke cycle for the top eight finishers at U.S. Olympic trials. And the, the, for distance swimming, the, the range, was, it was actually fairly wide. So it was from about 1.2 stroke, 1.2 seconds to complete a stroke cycle to about 1.8. So that'd be the equivalent of like right around 100 strokes a minute to as few as about 65 to 70. Uh, if you look at um, kind of the top swimmers in uh, triathlon and Ironman, um, they're all coming in at about 1.5 to 1.6. So kind of right in the middle of the, the mix. Um, and, you know, I have never seen anyone with big paddles on really be able to pull any faster, have a stroke tempo of any faster than about 2 to about 2.2. So again, why would you want to train your body? Why do you want all of that musculature to fire at that much slower kind of tempo? Um, you know, if you want to gain strength in the water, um, the, one of the better ways to do it is kind of in the gym. Um, and, you know, when I was swimming in college, that's what we did. We were in the gym and I've, I've been working with a Actually, a really great uh, guy out of uh, California. He was he was an Olympic swimmer himself, and then um, coached at Cal Berkeley for about a dozen years and worked with a lot of uh, Olympic swimmers there. And he's developed a really great program um, that is very kind of targeted to swimming. And then he's been working with some of the pros that I coach on just kind of an Ironman program in general that um, has been pretty slick. Uh, I mean, one of the pros that I worked with. He's already dropped a couple seconds per hundred in the water, and then he's picked up about 10 to 15 watts on the bike. Mm. So it's been in about four or five months. So it's been fairly significant, and it really kind of gets at that whole kinetic chain and connecting the, the whole stroke together. So it's, um, it's, it's been pretty slick. Cool. Now, yeah. With the, the open water swim and triathlon, it's changed yeah. markedly over the years, both for, yeah. the, for the age groupers and the pros, because the, the pros, if we put them to one side, you know, the swim in Kona is uh, is pretty aggressive to start with and it's fast. Yep. And, and equally for the age groupers in Kona, it's it's a pretty similar mix. If you want to be at yep. the, the pointy end, you've got to get out strong. Yep. But things, things are now changing um, for the age groupers, at least. I don't think the pros, um, I think the swim's getting marked marginally faster each year with, yeah. with ITU guys coming across. But yep. for, for age groupers, you know, now we've got all these different sort of swim starts. It's changing yep. a bit because, um, you know, uh, if you rock up to a race in the past, if you wanted to be competitive or even if you wanted to get in the right position, you had to get out pretty strong yeah. and then settle into a group. Whereas now we've yep. got all these different rolling starts, wave starts, yep. etc. And in theory, um, you know, a lot of athletes now are, are swimming at a, at a more even, output and not having to get out fast so are you yeah. sort of adapting your methods at all or, or or yeah or did you in the past used to do sets where you'd get them to go out really fast and then settle down or, or, or how are things going to change over the coming years yeah. given most things are, are going that way yeah i mean i think um i think you can look at it kind of a couple different ways so like you said at the pointy end so if you want to be a really competitive age grouper you want to get to kona there is no more you know, just get through the swim, hammer the bike in the run, and you'll podium. 
I think those days are kind of, especially kind of getting to Kona. Um, those days are, are kind of behind us. So um, I think in terms of the introduction of the wave start or the really the rolling start, um, you know, that's been a pretty good development. I mean, one of the things that Ironman looked at was, you know, how does a rolling start impact swim times and then kind of overall times? And what they found was that swim times got faster um, and that um, they even saw a little bit of a correlation between bike times getting faster, too. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, so I think in that regard, it's been a, a really great development where, especially when you can kind of self-seed yourself. So like Ironman Texas uh, on Saturday, they'll have, you know, you'll have kind of volunteers holding signs that say, the under hour group, then an hour to 110, then it'll be like 115 to 130, and you self-seed yourself based on where you think you're going to be. So, you know, the groups tend to be a little bit smaller. Um, even in the even in these kind of rolling starts, um, there still is a fast kind of first 100, 200 meters because everyone mm. wants to get out and get clean water. Mm. Um, so, but then, you know, you're more likely, it's a lot easier than to find guys that are your speed or maybe a little bit faster mm -hmm. to draft off of. And that ultimately is kind of where the, the, the loophole in open water swimming is for triathletes is that the draft is everything. So if you can get with a guy that is, or a girl that's a little bit faster than you and get on their feet and hold their feet, um, you are going to go, you know, you're going to have one of your better swim times ever or better kind of places out of the water ever. Um, and, you know, with that, there's going to be you've got to be prepared then for surges around buoys. You've got to be prepared for sometimes athletes will surge kind of in the middle of the um, in the middle of the race to get around other athletes. And if you're drafting, you've got to be kind of prepared for those surges. Now, if you're drafting right, um, some of the research shows that it's about as much as a 38% reduction in effort. Mm. And that's kind of why you can, you know, not be, say, um, you know, I mean, like, for instance, Andy Potts uh, almost qualified for the U.S. Olympic team in the 400, 400 uh, freestyle or the 400 IM um, when he was 19 years old. Now, you know, with some of these guys that are out there, you know, if we put Andy Potts in the pool with someone with another triathlete um, and there's no draft involved, um, it's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a completely different race. Mm. But because that draft is there, because someone can come right up on Andy Potts's feet, um, it's going to be a completely different race. Mm. Mm. So um, in terms of uh, Magnolia Masters, maybe give us a bit yeah. of a plug. And yeah, obviously not everybody's going to be able to make it to Texas for your, uh, for your workouts, yeah. but, but is there anything where they can get information on what you do, your sort of yeah. methodology, and, and obviously people in your neck of the woods, or, or do you run yep. swim camps or anything like that? Yeah, no. So we do a – I'll do a pro camp every January. So the, um, usually about 10 to 12 pros will come in. Uh, for the month of January, the Woodlands is uh, a ridiculously supportive community for triathletes. Um, you know, all kind of things aside with the bike course that's, that's gone on for the last <laughs> six months. Um, but, uh, you know, so 
basically people up, open up their homes for the month of January for these athletes to come in and train with the team. And uh, we do a lot of swimming. And I usually write up a daily blog on what we're doing. And you can find it at magnoliamasters.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just go under the blog and you can read kind of what we're doing on a daily basis. I post the workouts, give people an idea of what we're trying to accomplish. And then one of the things I've been playing around with was uh, Facebook came up with that live stream. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a bunch of pros in the water that are here for Ironman Texas. And I broadcast two of the workouts live so far on the Magnolia Masters Facebook page. So that's mm-hmm. just facebook.com slash Magnolia Masters. Mm. And I did kind of a commentary as kind of they were going through the workout and what we're trying to achieve. Nice. And the videos are still up on the Facebook page, so you can you can still see them. And then I'm going to do, I'll do another video um, on the May 11th of kind of the workout on May 11th as we, as we and what a taper starts to look like before a big race. Yeah. Nice. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of some of the ideas. And then, you know, I'm more than happy to answer questions or anything like that. So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, getting better in the swim is it's, you know, it's not magic. It's not kind of wizardry. It's just experience, hard work and patience and consistency. And, um, you know, I'm happy to kind of um, help people, you know, with questions, answering questions, if they have, you know, any problems or any issues kind of around that. Awesome. And how are things looking for the weekend? Have we got a, a long range weather prediction and any predictions yeah. on uh, who's taking it out? Yeah. You know, Texas is uh, always a little strange where, uh, you know, there's a saying that, you know, if you don't like the weather, wait 15 minutes, it'll change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so right now it's looking like, I think the last that I saw was that, um, it was going to be about 90 degrees. Yeah. So that is uh, Celsius. I guess that's what in the. It's getting up towards 30, I'd say. Yeah. I think 100, 100 is 32 or something like that. Yeah. So probably kind of upper 20s, low yeah. 30s, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, the dew point's going to be at 70. So it could be fairly humid. There's a chance of rain. Mm. So. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's got the potential to be one of the, you know, 2013 was probably the most brutal mm. um, year. And it, it kind of was like this in the lead up where the, the weather was fairly moderate and cool. Mm. And then race day, it just it, it was just like, you know, someone threw a hammer down. <laughs> nice. So Ooh, That's brilliant. So, guys, if you want to check out that, we'll have um, we'll have, in terms of finding out anything more about Tim or Magnolia Masters, we'll check it out. The Facebook page um, was facebook.com slash Magnolia Masters, um, but we'll also have some other links up there. So thanks so much for your time, Tim. Um, I think hey, appreciate int- it. Intensity is an area there where a lot of people ignore it, so hopefully we've enlightened a few more of them on that. And uh, all the best for the weekend. Hey, you the same. Thank you. Okay, Jombo, your thoughts? It's all good stuff. So, guys, check it out. Uh, it was Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Magnolia Masters. And uh, look, I think a lot of it makes real good sense. I think a lot of us endurance athletes don't put enough intensity into our training. It's all got to be balanced. You know, if you just try to slap an intensity on the bike, slap an intensity on the run, slap it in on the um, the swimming as well, you know, you just got to you just got to do it in a smart way. So, again, it's all part of the jigsaw puzzle. But I think most coaches will agree that you do need to have that 
um, variability in your training. You know, but just going out there and going long and slow has its benefits. That it has its place, but doing some intensity can certainly help a lot. And I really like the points that he made about uh, trying to improve your hip position and your ankle flexibility because I know that a lot of you guys struggle with that. So, all good stuff. Okay, guys, John, we're going to do my first try, and this one comes from Michael Good. Abu Dhabi Sprint back in 2014. It was a 750-meter swim, a 50K bike, and a 5K Ooh, run. It's got to hurt. Hopefully that's not a typo. It's a killer of a bike when you've got a short swim and a, sh- and a 5K run. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe it was a typo. It might have been a 20K bike. Maybe. Uh, terrible swimmer back then. It was only a couple of years ago, so he's obviously made some <laughs> massive improvements. And it was my first open water swim. I settled into a good steady rhythm and thought I was going well when all of a sudden my leading hand hit something hard. I looked up and I'd hit one of the safety kayaks. The guy in the kayak says, the course is over there. When I looked up to where he was pointing, I was about 100 metres off course. Nice. I did the bike on a bike with a standard pedals and aero bars I'd fitted the day before. <laughs> it's not a good <laughs> They were too low. I couldn't even use them. I averaged 28.5 k's per hour, which I was delighted with at the time. Now I would be mortally embarrassed. Starting the run, my left hip was cramping up and I was so desperate to complete the race, I started thumping my leg and shouting, Work, you bastard! <laughs> Much to the amusement of the spectators. Still, it got me hooked on triathlon. So well done, Michael. That was a, a great example of what not to do in your first triathlon. Ah, I love all these stories of people swimming off course and they're just so far off course they just have to get whacked by the, the surf lifeguards to get them back on course. Brilliant. Well, the worst is when you just trust the person in front of you and then you look up and you realize they don't know where the heck they're going. Yeah. Because I tend to not – if I've got someone in front of me, I just tend to go, you know what, they must be sighting well. Yeah. And uh, that can sometimes be an unwise strategy. Jombo, sponsors. Oh. A- Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Extreme endurance. Your lactic buffer. And a couple more patrons. We've got Richard, the Prince of Darkness, Osborne. Nadine Flower Power Voice, who's racing Ironman Texas this weekend. We've got the Big Dipper, Sean Bonsell. Leonard's the Gifted Artist, Monterio. And Paul, two-wheel predator, Monk. So there we go. If you want to become a patron of the show, go to www.iamtalk.me. Uh, one, one comment we often get is that this show adds a lot of value to athletes' lives. And so if you think this adds value to what you do and you want to kind of support us and what we're doing, we really appreciate it. So you can go to www.iamtalk.me and it's all pretty simple. Jumbo, what's your goss? What's my goss? Just done a trainer session, been pumping out the rev box. I'm doing a bit more cycling specific training as I get ready for France. And uh, I've got to say, the rev box is really good because. Did it end up uh, becoming a product? Did it end up? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's all go. So you can uh, buy it online. I think it's revbox.co.nz or if you just type in revbox, it'll come up. But uh, so the type of workouts I'm doing at the moment, like today, I did 10 by one minute at 140% of FTP is going pretty nuts you do those type of workouts on the kicker and stuff um, it really just grinds your cadence down to a, a really struggle to do those type of workouts on the um, rev box you've got really good control so really enjoying doing some uh, some different work on there why does it feel but, different? Um, you can go from 0 to 400 watts uh, or 400 plus watts within like 2 seconds and yeah, I think the main thing is it's all it's, so it's fan it's, it's sort of a fan driven turbine on the back of the wheel, and you can feel you're really pressing evenly around the whole pedal stroke. Um, whereas on the kicker, uh, you're kind of fighting the machine a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah. so, so the difference kind of like between those old what is it wind trainer kind of thing? Where it's, mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So really enjoyed that, and 
other than that, went to have the, we had the Canterbury Primary Schools duathlon this morning. Man, it's good to go to those races, and it's just we have like eight hundred kids or something entered this morning. So, so that was all good, and then went off to a, my study where they were telling me that eating fat's all bad, and I was uh, I was regretting the fact that I wasn't as well prepared as I would have liked to have been, and I could have come back with a few studies saying mm, maybe you should think otherwise. Are you going to be that guy? Well. <laughs> I wanted to be, but I wasn't. They, they'd given us all this reading to do before the lecture, which was all, you know, how fat's bad, especially saturated fat, um, unsaturated fat, uh, you know, not necessarily so bad. But uh, I didn't have anything to go in and back myself up. So yeah, I did you don't try want to go. Oh, I know because. Yeah, because I said so. <laughs> yeah. I've got yeah. a friend who read a book once, and he yeah. said. So, oh, there was a lot of people that weren't having a bar of it, though. So, uh, so oh, interesting. How is it interesting true to feel? Because it is such an open subject right now, and I'm sure they're probably being influenced around some of the thinking that's coming around diet, you know, because it's such a kind of moving target. I wonder how they feel about because they have to deliver the content, don't they? But, but people couldn't get their heads around reducing the carbohydrate content. They, they're going, but I love my carbs, I've got to eat them. And I said, yep. Yeah, um, Anyway, I won't go on too much. I was I was trying You're that to. Guy. I was trying. You have no friends at lunchtime, do you, John? Yeah, I was trying, but it was not succeeding. And uh, so it was interesting stuff. Outside of that, Bevan, um, what else has been happening? Mother's Day on Sunday. Took a day off training to to be with my lovely lovely wife. Not that she's my mother, but I was. Uh, we looked after the kids, and they all got her some nice presents. So it was all good. Bevan, what about you? Do you know what we did on Friday, John? Um, have you done Adrenaline Forest? Adrenaline forest. No, I have not. Oh, you've got to take the kids. It's it's basically an outdoor rope slash climbing thing. It's across the road from Spencer Park. And so you basically go there on grab one. That's normally $40. And on grab one on Friday, it was only 20 And it's our day off. So we thought we'll do it. Fun and day Friday. Fun day Friday. <laughs> and, uh, and so we went along. And there's basically there's eight different ones you can do and you kind of just stand up and you're on a harness and you're linking and all the rest of it and it starts from very easy so kids can go along and, and do it up to level six which was the hardest and I was determined to do it so basically you're, you're never going to die you're safe as houses but but they you can kind of use your harness to help you through the really difficult ones and I was determined to do the whole thing without you know without my harness and I did it but I tell you what there's a bit of rope humping happening at some stages <laughs> I tell you I was I was well enthused by those ropes um, <laughs> but awesome I highly recommend it it's a really good like we spent three and a half hours there mm. and, and just you know good active movement and you know and but challenging if you're not if you're a bit here scared of heights it was no, it was really good so highly recommend it for the kids John nice work and then other than that, uh, go the Crusaders. Go the Crusaders. Yeah. It's our rugby our rugby union team for all you uh, non-Kiwis and Aussies and Pomps. Doing really well right now. We're playing Otago this weekend mm-hmm. and uh, go the Crusaders. So other than that, John, I'm, I'm pretty much it. Let's, let's call it night because I've actually got to do the work now. Yes, so I've, I've got to go, go over my dinner. Yeah, I've got to process the show. So, yeah. Fine, Russ. I'm in dope. Train hard. Train smart. Kick, Kick up. up.